friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I came here to bury Caesar, not praise him. What's up, y'all? This is episode three of the MC Lars podcast coming at you like a riverboat full of flavor down the Mississippi River. It's your host, MC Lars, and uh, I am very happy this week to be here with Schaefer the Dark Lord. Now, this interview, like the Front Lot one, ran mad long. It was like two hours, so I trimmed it down to two shorter segments. So this week and next week, you're going to hear my interviews with Schaefer the Dark Lord. I love Schaefer the Dark Lord because he's an awesome guy to tour with. He like, he's a great collaborator. He's a great friend. He's sensitive. He's smart. He's he's wickedly funny. His flow is awesome, and like, he's one of those guys who I feel like in a different reality could have been, could have been, still could be, but you know, could have been a platinum selling comedic horrorcore rapper. And he just everything he does about his art, I adore. And everything about the guy I love. And he was at my wedding with his partner. They came and it was just like awesome to have a friend like this. And and I, I just am really glad I got to talk to him. So Schaefer the Dark Lord. In this episode, we talk about his origins and how he got started rapping after playing in like grindcore and punk bands and his first experiences with touring, which we'll get into more in the second episode. But what's crazy is we both realize we lived in San Francisco in the Bay Area around the same time. I was an undergrad at Stanford, and he was working out there and doing music. And he'd read a press, one of the first press pieces ever about me. And he thought, oh, we might be friends one day. And I had heard one of his songs on Boing Boing on a on a uh, old school blog back in the day. And I, his, his song, uh, Revenge of the Clone Effer, which is like a very filthy, funny self home produced great song and i was like i want to be friends with this guy hopefully he's not a serial killer so this week is shape of the dark lord and i hope y'all are going to enjoy it um i want to do some shout outs thank you to the new patreon subscribers specifically to michelle jamie and logan they all subscribed in the past week they all pledged thank you to all the old patreon uh supporters i am for the next few weeks on patreon i just finished reading all the chronicles of narnia so i made an ep and i'm calling it the c.s lewis ep but i'm releasing it song by song where i talk up do a song about each of the seven books of the narnia chronicles so if you want this exclusive c.s lewis flavor uh log on to patreon.com slash mc lars and check it out there's a lot of awesome stuff on there you get the old back catalog i'm into it you'll be into it. I, I really enjoy Patreon. And so check out that platform. Mega Rain and I just made an album. Thank you to our, our, our Kickstarter supporters. We are like basically done. We're just finishing like one or two more guest vocals we're waiting on. And then we'll have the mastered version. We'll get it. We'll slide into your DMS, the supporters before we go on tour, you'll get a copy of it and uh, we'll have the official release date soon. But yes, that's coming. I'm on tour with Schaefer the Dark Lord, MC Frontalot, and Mega Ran in October. Go to nerdcoretour.com. This coming weekend, I'm playing RavenCon, which is a festival in Virginia and in Richmond. And it's awesome because it's an Edgar Allan Poe music-themed event, which is freaking crazy. So check that out. That's this Saturday, the 22nd. And yeah, that's basically it. I want to thank you all for listening. The podcast has gotten a great reaction, and, and I feel like... Uh, everyone's comments and everything have been super inspiring. So please tell your friends, please rate and review it. Even if you hate it, (laughs) write a comment on iTunes. It helps to see that people are engaged. Speaking of engaged, I just got married. Um, so shout out to married life to everyone out there, single, married, looking, finding love, finding passion, following your paths 
and manifesting your greatness. Speaking of which, this is my interview, part one, with Schaefer, the Dark Lord, on the MC Lars podcast. This is The Force Awakening, and speaking of Star Wars fans, I'm hanging out with one of my favorite people I've ever worked with, toured with, recorded with, a New York City, I, I wouldn't say native, but resident, a great friend. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Schaefer the Dark Lord. We're recording at in Schaefer's apartment, and I won't tell you exactly where it is, but we recorded, last time I was here, I was on his his and Lugo's podcast. Right, that was, oh God, that was like almost three years ago? Oh my, three years ago, 2015? Yeah, yeah, that I was in 2015, so. yeah. Well, um, I was going to say, like, um, how long have, have you and Lugo been doing your podcast together? Uh, we started in the summer of 2012. I think our first episode was in August of 2012. And it's 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 a monthly, but we've there have been a couple of months that we've missed here and there. So I was like halfway between now and then. Like, yes. If you were to draw a line. Yeah. That's a ruler. I was six inches deep. You were. You absolutely were. Oh, my gosh. I didn't mean like that. I meant like. You are the um, what is it? I don't know the, the I don't median. Rem- I was gonna say the, the there's median, mean, and the other one. I don't I don't remember my public education. So Schaefer, as many of y'all know, he has two beautifully hairless cats. Anyone who follows him on social media knows that they are very important in his life. And there's one right now slinking across the desk. And I was surprised by two things today. First of all, okay, how warm your hairless cats are. Yes, they're very warm. <laughs> um. They, their bodies tend to run a little bit warmer to compensate for the lack of fur. And because they have this kind of velvety skin, I find, I've always described um, what they feel like as a velvet hot water bottle. Oh, that's good. good. I ripped that off. There was this uh, science fiction bookstore in the Mission when I lived there in San Francisco many years ago. And they had a house, they had a store cat that was a, um, that was a sphinx, a hairless cat named Ripley, which is a, a great name in a science fiction bookstore and also a good description of what their skin looks like. And they had a little sign on the wall that had like some questions about that, that uh, customers would ask about the hairless cats. And one of them was, what does Ripley feel like? And the answer was a, a velvet hot water bottle. But um, what also surprised me is they're not actually hairless. Like, no, there is a very fine, fine layer of, of fuzz. What one of my cats is, um, He's mixed with a little something. So he's got things like like those whiskers that come out of their foreheads, like regular cats do. Yeah. My younger one is um he's more of a pure breed and so he doesn't have that. He has almost no hair at all. But he there's still like this very fine layer of kind of peach fuzz. So I want to talk about how I first discovered the music of Shape of the Dark Lord. I want to talk about your journey as an artist, your your process as a uh creator and kind of like how you you see yourself in the um, hip hop world and where you're going with your future projects. Like those are the three or four things I want to cover. And I think we can like, I think there's enough background that we don't have to like explain all of our working relationship, but I want to talk more like about just your life as an artist. Cause I don't think we ever sat down and had like a clear conversation like this. You know, I don't think we have either. Now that you mention it. Which yeah. is kind of tight. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this this makes the audience privy to this new development in our friendship. That makes it special. It's real life, G. I first met Schaefer. I first heard Schaefer's music in in um, 
2006, probably late 2006, I heard the, your your clone effer song <laughs> on a on a on a blog or something like that. Uh-huh. Someone on MySpace sent me a link to it, and I remember listening to it, and I was like, first of all, I thought it was cool because I could tell it was like home recorded, and I could tell it was like it was like something you did on your own. And also, I was like, whoever made this is like insanely twisted, but insanely imaginative, and and. I really like would love to meet this person one day and see what they're like off the microphone. Because like the thing about indie rap is that it's so much about being yourself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But you play this character, especially in that song where you have this strange science fiction, horror, sexual imagination thing. I was (laughs) like, is this guy, this guy could either be like someone I really want to be friends with or someone who like, I really don't want to have like, I don't want him to have my phone number. (laughs) Can you tell us about that song and like, I, would you agree that was like one of your early viral things? Uh, it was one of my my first songs as a not one of my first hip hop songs, but it was one of my first Shape of the Dark Lord songs. I I had a hip hop project before, but then um, that group, which was based in San Francisco, we were called the End of the World. When we split up, um, Rocco and I, we were the two main MCs in that group. We started um, our solo careers, and I immediately started moving all of my stuff in a direction of being kind of influenced by all my years in heavy metal, as well as I just wanted to be kind of uh, disturbing and crass and, 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 (laughs) and shocking. I, I really, I really felt like I needed to, I had this responsibility to try to make a strong impact with an audience. And I think it was because I didn't feel very secure as a solo artist. I, had this great show and this great rapport with this other rapper and now i was on my own and i was like i i've got to like either make people sick or aroused or uh shocked something i had to get like a strong response and so yeah i think i think clone effort was my third song um so what were your first two songs then uh after going solo um one of them i i think i i started i wrote like a self-referential song to be just to kind of like a mission statement to say, this is who I, my character is now called I am Schaefer, the dark Lord. Um, I don't remember what the second one is. It's probably this song called pure evil that was built on samples of this grindcore band that I used to play drums in. And then I think uh, clone effort was when I started getting into this really kind of gross comedy, <laughs> which was a, a period that lasted for quite a while. And, and that song, um, it definitely got the sort of, um, range of extreme responses that I was looking for. And um, what kind of stuff were you doing with your early projects? Like what were some of your th- lyrical topics of your first hip hop project? Our first hip hop projects are my first ones. Um, my very first hip hop project was when I was in college in the 90s. And it was like this secret four track project that with Coolsy or not? Nah? No, um, oh. Coolsy and I were in college at the time, but we didn't really meet each other until, you know, weeks before I moved to California. Okay. Um, and then we spent these years forming a friendship after not living in the same place. Um, but all of the stuff that I did then, all of my early my early stuff was uh, just terrible, just really <laughs> incredibly problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, me trying to mimic the, the the kind of more hardcore elements of the gangster rap that I listen to, and it's it's just unlistenable to me now. It hurts. Where can we find that? Or you it- will not find that. <laughs> Cool Z threatens me every day because <laughs> Cool Z and I became friends around that time. He was just like also an indie musician who had his little side four track project called the Sucka MCs. 
and we were both selling our 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 cassettes in the local record store. So we knew, we found out who we, each other in was. Iowa. Yeah, in yeah. Iowa. He's yeah. been threatening me for years that he's going to release my my <laughs> early stuff. And I, it just it gives me nightmares. The lyrical stuff uh, in San Francisco, um, it was kind of it was really all over the place. We did we. You know, we had kind of a vague apocalyptic theme because we were called the end of the world. So we okay. kept kind of talking yeah. about how this is, you know, around right after 9-11 and, and the early years of the Bush presidency. And so we were just kind of writing a lot of songs about how we're all going to die and it's everything's falling apart. It started getting a little more personal. Um, uh, Rocco uh, wrote a lot of songs about the experience of, of transitioning um, because that was happening in the group at the time. Um, I was writing songs, you know, kind of tongue in cheek songs about, I do a lot of drugs and I'm out of control, <laughs> um, which ended up becoming two of the characteristics that really kind of defined our, uh, the, our, our solo material going forward. I, we both kind of developed on that. Um, his stuff became very socially aware and, and uh, was speaking very candidly about the, a trans experience and mine grew more and more into uh, I, I'm an out of control drug addict and was kind of like in this whistling past the cemetery, like I'm making a joke. It's not a problem. And it, it really was a problem. I was really masking this kind of problem by, by putting it on stage and making it cartoonish. Um, so, so like, were you kind of like, like foils for each other and that, like you, did it seem like that dichotomy of uh, someone transitioning and finding their new gender identity and then you, with with substance stuff and like trying to find a balance it was kind of like there's this um i don't know you played off each other or like how did that dynamic dynamic work would you say uh it did it worked really well um it, strangely it seemed like there were these kind of disparate elements that that ended up meshing really well we um you know we a lot of our material also kind of spoke to our experience of being part of this kind of punk rock uh, performance art subculture of San Francisco, like the, the punks in the mission where we, you know, the, the scene that we, we both ran in at that time. And so we had these, these elements that kind of tied it all together. And then I, I think even when we were talking about different topics, it all kind of worked because we developed this great rapport, both personally and rhythmically, like by trading off of one another on, on lyrics. And I'll, I'll say this until my final breath that, that that experience was so good for me because Rocco was and remains a far, far superior rapper to me. <laughs> okay. And so, you know, doing my own stuff before that was was kind of clowning. And then I started working with somebody who was this just brilliant kid, had so much talent and 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 thirst and drive. And uh, working with him was was incredible because I, when we would write back and forth parts, I had to really step up my game to to feel like I was on the same level as him. And and that's something I noticed like when we've worked together is that you're a very good collaborator. Like not only are you always the first to send your verses, but they're always like <laughs> really well produced and really good. And like I could tell that um you kinda I guess you those skills you learn, you know, that like you gotta be quick when you're working with someone and also like you kinda you always play well off you always find lyrical connections with the songs we've done together where you you connect the dots in ways I wouldn't have thought. And I guess that comes from your Genesis in being part of this group. I think it does. And I think that I do a lot of collaborations. I've done many with you. Um, I, those I, I find are, to this day, are, are the most valuable um, experiences in this. Because you can kind of, 
I, I found that, you, you know, as an indie artist, you can get to a point where you kind of coast on your morals. You have an audience that your, your fans like you. They like the stuff you do. You can keep like kind of plugging out your or, or chugging out your 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 solo songs. And you know that you're going to have this audience that's going to respond to them. But you get a uh, you get a collaboration request. And this person has their another audience, a bigger audience or a different audience. And now you're not just the one um, element of creative control in the process. So I yeah. feel that every time I get a collaboration, I'm kind of auditioning for my friend <laughs> and I want it to be good. I want it to be something that they're proud to release. And I want it to be something that feels not like two people recorded their, their parts separately thousands of miles apart and then just meshed it all together. But instead it feels like it's part of a, uh, of a through narrative in it. And so I try to kind of, match rhythmic elements or match certain rhyme schemes or, or match references and without doubling up on them. Yeah. And I think that, um, I always like that. I learn new things about it. Like in our pop culture ones, one specifically that comes to me is the Bruce Campbell song. You're the one dude on that song who really <laughs> referenced Bruce Campbell. We're all like serial <laughs> killers and like you'd nail all the evil dead and, and army of darkness <laughs> references in that verse. And like, when I go back and see those movies, I'm like, oh, I get it. I get what you, what you <laughs> the, I hope about. you rot down there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I thought about that at the time too. And I liked that. I liked that you that you did a verse about kind of horror theme and had Jeffrey Dahmer. If it was if it was four MCs all doing a 16 about with Bruce Campbell references, that song would be really tedious by the end. And it's not, right. and that's not the case. And Bryce did his own thing and Zealous One did his own thing. Zealous One did also have a Bruce Campbell reference in there because he says, give me some sugar baby. Yeah, that's true. That's so, true. That's true. Um, and I, I, I liked that. I, I liked that that happened. I like that you will will put references, that you will have a song that is ostensibly a, a reference driven song and you will make references to other pop culture things. That's a thing that I've always liked. We, we did this Stranger Things song. Yeah. And you make references to Hellboy, Jaws, and Aliens. <laughs> and it just inexplicably. And oh, I feel that that, thanks, that, that makes it richer. And it doesn't make it like just another, here's, here's another reference fest. I mean, I think with nerd rap and specifically like the nerdcore people like, who, like us who've been at it for so long... Um, you don't want it to read as a Wikipedia article on on Sideshow Bob if you're doing a Simpsons rap. Right. It's like for me, it's for me, it's like, okay, well, what can we say about Sideshow Bob? What other archetypes of the villain and like yeah, like that's always fun for me. And I think that like when you work with other people, you're able to like bounce ideas off. And if you get a reaction, it's like when we hang out and talk, it's like we kind of like know it so much about each other from our music and then we're able to like get a new reaction and build especially when we're writing together you know yeah I, and I, again i just i think that 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 makes it so much better saying saying like a wikipedia entry is is an is an excellent shorthand for describing the the potential the, the well the type of 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 song that becomes pretty common among nerdcore rappers yeah um there was a period a few years ago where it felt like there was this kind of race every time there was some new pop culture thing was released and everybody'd be like, Oh, I like oh, adventure time. Yeah. Hey, here comes my adventure time song. This is this character. This character says this, this one says this. And, and that became, it, it, there was just oversaturation of that. And, and before we get into like, I want to talk about the current state of the subgenre, but I want to rewind a little bit. Like I know you, you've played drums in a grind grindcore band. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, I was wondering like, if you could share, what were some of your experiences you got, especially in the Bay Area, that then helped you 
build your career as an indie artist and like what was that experience like at that time like like let's talk about that for a minute like how long were you playing in that band and what were they called and everything um there were i was playing drums in two bands in san francisco and there were members there were members in each band that were friends of mine that we'd gone to college together in iowa that we'd all moved to california together i was in this one band called bottle dog for 10 years and we were kind of proggy uh genre hopping kind of all over the map like we would have a kind of a punk song and then kind of like a emerson lake and palmer synthesizer crazy time signature epic song and so that's uh, kind of like ween then it, it kind of was <laughs> yeah. i mean there was and there were lots of like kind of subtle jokes and tons of just experimentation there was, was so much bottle dog bottle dog okay it was it was first it was bottle dog uh-huh. and then after a few years uh we changed it to bottled og <laughs> we were uh, just art weirdos and we would like have goofy costumes on stage and everything was kind of non sequiturs and, and weird but there was a lot of experimentation with recording techniques and effects and instruments and we were just kind of always trying to do something new at times kind of pretentious college art rock. Um, but I felt that, you know, near the end of the time, we really found a groove where we were still pushing ourselves forward, but had a unified sound. The other band that I was playing in was a band called Burmese that was, it was two bassists and two drummers uh, and a vocalist, which was one of the bassists. And it was just, it was, it would go like the range of this really heavy, brutal, sludgy stoner rock, like the Melvins all the way up to this really kind of, uh, I don't know, buzzy, blurring uh, black metal like Emperor um, to at times like parts of elements of like DI or DRI's more hardcore material. Mm. But it it was mostly like kind of grindcore, like blast beats and like Cookie Monster vocals. And, You'd and, one vocalist? Yeah. And then two bassists and two drummers? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. The the the, the two bassists uh, were both named Mike G, and the two drummers were both named Mark S. Too. So was we, that coincidental? Uh, yeah, that wasn't like your stage names. Oh, no. obviously Mark. Yeah, Mark yeah. Schaefer. Yeah, we. But but yeah, um, that's dope. That band had, you know, that band had existed before I joined. They'd had a, a couple of drummers, and they had a few drummers after me. Um, but that band had kind of developed this more of a following. So Burmese shows had audiences, and it was very the live performance was was as aggressive as the music was it, it, the you know the the one of the mics or both of the mics actually would walk into the audience and get in people's faces or like they hit them with their bases or wow. i would like tear my drums apart and throw them into the audience and we did a show where we set oh up God. two 2000 watt lamps on stage point at the audience and during certain heavy parts we just flick them on and the entire audience <laughs> would be blinded while also being deafened it was really aggressive both in both musically and and in its delivery. And I felt that 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 kind of helped me. I've never been that physical or confrontational with my audience as Schaefer the Dark Lord, but I I felt like I I developed a kind of uh I could posture this kind of like aggressive confidence on stage that wasn't sincere because I was still really insecure about about this act. Uh-huh. But I could still stand on stage and like you know, put a foot up on the monitor, grab my crotch and be like, I don't even care about any of you people and just deliver this material. And that that was, I think, one of the one of the the, the elements of being in that group that really informed this one. So it's c- kind of like like in the tradition of bands, Bay Area bands like Flipper, where it was just like get a reaction out of the audience. And and there's an artistic like aesthetic just to that. Like, yeah. 
what were some of the clubs you played in San Francisco and Oakland? And oh stuff? my gosh, I don't even know if any of them are still around, but there was like this place in the Tenderloin called uh, Chemo's. I think it's still around. We played yeah. that room a lot. It was just brutal. And we played with so many of these extreme noise bands. From was this like like early 2000s? Early or? 2000s, like 2001 to 2004. I left. Okay. I moved to New York in 2004 and I joined Burmese in 2000, but I feel okay. like it really kind of picked up like that second year that I was in it. Um, but yeah, these, these dark, uh, dirty rooms. You play like the rickshaw stop. Oh yeah. yeah. Rickshaw stop opened while I was there, That's like the while one. I was in that band and I played that. Um, there was the covered wagon saloon, which was like a big metal bar. How about hotel Utah? Or is that F yeah. yeah. Hotel Utah was the first show that bottle dog played when we first moved to New York. And it was also the going away show that we played when I moved to New York, when I when or you no. First moved to San Francisco, you yeah. played there. When, when Bottle Dog first moved to San Francisco, we got our first gig at Hotel Utah. <laughs> Didn't play it again. Yeah. Um, and then our going away show, which was both Bottle Dog's last show and uh, the Shape of the Dark Lord record release party for my first album. But That's dope. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? So it bookended your time. It bookended there. my time in San Francisco, yeah. So what was your first so- your first solo show then as Shape for the Dark Lord? It was at the bottom of the hill. Oh, wow. Yeah. My first show was at Bottom of the Hill, and that was a, a show wow. that that you know, Bottle Dog. We never really we kept working really hard, but we never really developed developed a strong following. Hmm. So we always wanted to play Bottom of the Hill, and we couldn't. We'd see all of our friends' bands play there all the time, and it would be kind of frustrating. Who did you who'd you play with, or were you headlining there? Or? When when I did, yeah, uh, no, I did not. I opened. I don't even remember who I opened for now, but I think it might have been Deerhoof. Cool. We were friends with them. Cool and. I don't know. Burmese played there a couple of times on some kind of bigger bills. But but yeah, my first Shape of the Dark Lord show was there. And this is, you know, after the end of the world. The end of the world hadn't broken up yet, but we both started doing solo shows. And that was my first one. I, to prepare for it, I made sure I had like a set of at least eight songs. I started doing comedy open mics. So Rapping I do, or talking? Talking. Oh, okay. So I could do transitional material. Yeah. Because I I, I was like, there aren't, two rappers on stage, you know, in the end of the world, if I wanted to take a break, I could like sip on my beer or whatever, catch my breath while the other rapper does something. Yeah. He pulls focus. He keeps the song moving forward. I, I'm like, I, I am not interesting enough by myself to entertain an audience for 30 minutes. So I started obsessively going to comedy open mics to kind of just learn rhythm of uh, delivering jokes for transitional material for intros so that I could catch my breath and to keep the audience engaged in some That's way. That's cool. But then I also overdid it and I was like, I need a, a like a shocking appearance. I was kind of going with this Burmese thing. I need to shock them. So those first shows and that first one at Bottom of the Hill, which is in like 03, I like got on stage and I'm worried. I got put on like black leather gauntlets and spikes and I wore like black metal corpse paint and I had a cape and like, it was wow, just, dude. I threw too many elements at this thing. I was like, I'm going to do comedy. I'm going to do rap songs. I'm going to do my sci-fi sex fantasy number on stage. I'm going to dress like a black metal superhero. It was just a lot. And it was not, not all yeah. of it worked. <laughs> but you were you were starting with like, like I'm not just going to be a dude rapping to a mini disc. Yeah. I'm going to do something different. I'd seen that act a lot. You yeah. know, I'd seen, even then, I'd seen acts where somebody got on stage. And yeah, mini discs were the... That was the that was the backing band of choice in the because, early 2000s. Because you didn't have, because it was like, you wouldn't bring a laptop on stage necessarily. No, that was unheard of. That was like in the Bay Area around that time. That's when I started to play around San Francisco too. Because, you know, I was in college in the Bay Area. And mm-hmm. like, I'm surprised we never crossed paths. That, I didn't meet you until 2006. But I yeah. first heard about you in 2002. 
Wow. Because I was in San Francisco and I had this job as a messenger for a, a film company that, that sold film to photographers and, and developed film. So I just drove around in a Volkswagen van yeah. all over the Bay Area all day. And when there was downtime, I would just sit in the office and read the paper. And I remember reading an article about this this kid from Stanford. Is that right? Stanford? Yeah, yeah. This kid from Stanford who was like making indie hip hop. I read this in San Francisco Examiner. And I remember wow. reading it and being like, huh, this sounds... That's crazy, This sounds man. kind of like a, the, the somebody, like kind of a spiritual homie of sorts. And that was, I think that's probably like the first press I ever got. I think I, and it was like, it was like just like a, a little background about what I was doing at yeah. Stanford. But it was sizable. Like there was a photo and it was like a pretty large article on the page. That's crazy, the man. Yeah. We were destined to meet. Yeah. And then it was like years later. And I even, even then remembered, I think I'd heard about you like a few times after moving to New York. But it wasn't, I don't think, until you'd asked me to come do this show in Boston that I remember reading it and being like, and telling my, well, now ex-wife, but my wife at the time, being like, I read an article about this guy in The Examiner when I worked at that film company. And so, yeah, all those years later. <laughs> and I remember when, I remember we met, yeah, that was at TT and the Bears. In, I think so. In Boston with Frontalot. And it was, it was, it would have been like February 2007. Something like that, yeah. And, and, um. You were there waiting and you helped us load in. I was like, this guy's real, really nice. Like, this guy's real sweet. And then I was like, oh, you're Schaefer. Cause like, when I heard your music, I didn't realize you, I had this image that you'd be like this big, scary, corpse <laughs> paint wearing fool. And you were like this really sweet, nice indie rock kid. And you're heading, help us set up. And you're like, I'm like, what's your name? You're like, I'm Mark. And then I, then I piece it together. Like, oh, you're Schaefer the Dark Lord. Yeah. And like, I remember that show being this cool moment in my, my, my career. Cause it was like, for the first time, I wasn't working with like like a pop punk band or a bigger bigger rapper. It was like three you, me, in front a lot, all in this place in Boston. And I remember it just like it was such it got such a good reaction. Oh yeah, that was show sick. was that show was sick. I remember <laughs> at the time being like, I, I'm certain at the time that that was the most people that I'd ever performed in front of at once. Like the, that cool. was the largest crowd that I'd ever played. And yeah, so I was waiting outside of the venue, but I had taken a bus there. Oh, and I don't know. I, I've told this story somewhere else, and I don't know if I've ever, you and I, or Damien, have ever talked about this, but um, you asked me to do the show. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't Damien, it was you, right? Yeah. You emailed me, you reached out and said, hey, we're doing this show. And you thought I lived in Boston. No, here's what I think happened. Damien asked me, Frenella asked me, who should, like, if we knew any, like, good rappers in other cities. So I was like, oh, we should get Shay for the Dark Lord. And he had been, he'd lived in Boston previously. Right. And I think he'd, like, read press about a show you'd done there, maybe. Oh, yeah, because so I had done, yeah, I'd been up there. He thought you'd lived there because he'd heard of you or seen you in Boston. So he, I was like, we should get this guy on one of the shows. And he reached out to you about that show, I think. Yeah, Because okay. you'd done shows in Boston that before. Is, that is what happened. But, yeah, yeah, he did. He was under the impression that I was local. And <laughs> for me, it wasn't that big of a deal. I didn't tell you guys that I lived in New York, but I had gone up there, you know, and that it was like, I'd been in New York a couple of years, but I'd taken the bus up to Boston a whole bunch of times for single shows. I'd go up there yeah. and play some show in Jamaica Plains in front of like a dozen people, take the bus home. And so going up there for a show that looked like it was going to have an audience was no problem <laughs> at all. But I got there early and, and I think I was, I, I think a thing, another thing that helped me from being in those bands is that I definitely had a very, um, maximum rock and roll book your own life DIY sort of work ethic yeah. in that you know you, you play small clubs and you haul all your gear in there and, and you help out the other bands when you can and so I was just eager to make new friends and also like well this is part of the job 
part of mm. the job is if you're free, you help the other band load in when, when they had their gear. It was just like that was that's the way I had learned how to do all of this. And that is that kind of like, I feel like, you know, the Bay Area kind of ethic, like there's a real great community back then. And I don't know, I haven't really stayed up on the local community there now, but I remember that was, yeah, that was always the thing. Be there first and leave last. Never leave, like the faux pas is, if you're a local, you never leave before the headliner who asked you to be there. No, I, I a whole on. bunch of people burned bridges with me by doing that very thing. If anyone has ever, if anyone does that, yeah, I'm not going to ask them to open again. No, it was, it's, it's rude and it's, it, <laughs> it kind of hurts my feelings. Yeah. It's like, it's like I watched you and so stick around. No, like, what do you have to do? Like bars close at two in this state. You're not going to another show. You just don't want to be here. All right. I get it. So, okay. How did you, so you, when your first show, it sounds like you had like this really theatrical performance how did what was the evolution to the purple suit and like your your aesthetic on stage like in the glove like what was how did you figure that costume out um i did the show uh, i did a couple of shows in the corpse paint and the the cape and the spikes and leather um and i got booked there was this oh god i can't remember what the, the venue was called but there was this oh it was the parkside there was a venue called the parkside and they had like a a weekly metal showcase and the person who booked it um, had me do it because I had songs that like sampled metal and, and I talked about metal and I had kind of a metal look, but I'm like, you know, the backing track CD hip hop act. Yeah. And so I got booked on the show and I was psyched because there were these awesome metal bands on the bill. And I'm like, these are the shows that I would be going to because I loved San Francisco metal and I was, you know, huge metalhead. Um, so I did this show and the following week in, um, there was a, you know, an online forum bulletin board for this, the San Francisco like metal group. And I just got torn to shreds. Aww. People were so insulted by my act and thought I was terrible and that there was no point that there should be hip hop on it. And they were mad at the booker for putting me were on you, the like, bill. like hosting or did you have like a full set? No, I just did a set. Okay. But I'm still like doing clone, you know, I'm still, yeah. still doing my clone song and all this gear. And um, they were just like, they were so offended that this clown, they thought it was like making fun of them. And, you know, that was my first experience with the internet being cruel. And yeah, I was, I was like deeply affected and, by it. And metalheads being traditionally open-minded. <laughs> right. Especially are. when you, for outsiders coming into their community and doing something different, they very open arms. Um, but I, I think that that was then the last time that I ever wore that costume. I was so affected by it. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. That's, Interesting. Yeah. And then, and then, so, the next show, did you just show up in the purple suit or like? No, the next show I started doing, my next few shows after that, I was wearing an all black suit. When I had been in the end of the world with Rocco, we had worn matching suits for all of our shows. It was a black shirt, black tie, or black suit, black tie, pink shirt, like bright pink shirt. And that was just our uniform. Yeah. Um, so once I ditched the, the heavy metal look, I just started wearing an all black suit all like black shirt, black tie, everything was all black all the time. I knew that I had to have some kind of look on stage. It's, it's always been my belief that my own personal um, sort of philosophy is that I don't want to dress like my audience because just because I'm really, I want things to be theatrical and I want to create this visual cue that says there is a separation between us. You know, in my punk rock days, it's very, 
we're all part of this thing. You play on the floor. Yeah. You're all wearing like the same like jeans and t-shirts. And in this thing, I was like, I want this to be different. I want them to know I am different than you. I'm a, to, yeah. to try to create this larger than life persona. And in some cases, it's something that's just as simple as putting on a suit. Um, so I, it was, I had a black suit for a little while. It wasn't, I don't think it was until I moved to New York that I started throwing purple into it. And purple was, uh, had always been my favorite color. And it was royalty. It's a color of royalty. Yeah. Uh, It's a reference to the Joker. It's a reference to Prince, who's like my favorite, like just about my favorite musician ever. Yeah. Um, Another Midwestern diminutive, narcissistic, (laughs) sexually ambiguous uh, (laughs) legend, musical weirdo. (laughs) Um, And uh, and yeah, purple's like always the color of of villains, like all Disney villains. Like their purple Mm. is always introduced into their things and so i was like that's gonna be something this all black suit is it's too much like a funeral director or or something yeah it was too much i want a little flash of color and ever since then like in 2006 five probably 2005 when i started wearing purple um ever since then it's just been variations of that you know either purple ties purple pocket squares got an all purple suit so i guess the purple didn't come around till 2008 because that was still representative of what i was wearing at the time that's cool um the black gloves um i wore the black gloves in one show just to kind of try it out because i was like there's something inherently creepy about somebody wearing gloves right it looks like it could be kind of crazy doctor or or murderer or like maybe a weird kinky sex thing it it doesn't even matter if you don't even have to define what it is there's just something about these black latex gloves that is that creates a reaction oh they're latex oh yeah also they're leather oh no oh I, and i buy them in bulk oh that's hilarious i mean i've ever said you're I like a serial killer yeah it just <laughs> there's there's i don't even know what it was but i did it in one show kind of as a as a goof and and audience members responded to it so tell us about the black box then like how did that like, and I'm sure most people listening to this have seen your show. Mm-hmm. So, but explain that because it's a little different than like all than the other rappers that have done. Yeah, I, so my backing, uh, my backing tracks were for many years played on a device um, that was housed in a small black Pelican case, like a gear case that you'd put like a camera lens or, you know, an ADAT or something in. Not an ADAT, but damn, I just dated myself. You put some kind of gear in. Um, mini display and i put some letters on it that said std whatever just just because i also i i just wanted more mystery i didn't want them to see a a laptop on stage i didn't want them to see i just wanted them to see this box and it ended up kind of becoming mysterious then people started asking me questions about it like what's in the box what's in the box and then i was like great now i've created a mystique i will proceed to not ever answer this question (laughs) <laughs> so okay. they can keep asking about yeah, it. Yeah. And that's all it was. It was like this mystery. And it's like the black box that survives in an airplane crash. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and I had like, for a while, I kind of tried to make the black box a character. Like I had these recorded robot voices that would play in between tracks where mm. we would do dialogue back and forth. And it was like, kind of like this lazy ventriloquist act. Like I'm talking to this little suitcase on stage. That's um, I didn't do it. I did it for a while, but after a while I started like phasing those bits out because I started writing longer intros for songs and the, and doing bits with this box started feeling kind of gimmicky. Do you just run the track and then and then talk and then know it's going to start again? Or do you start? I forget. Do you start and stop? Each I time? start and stop. Yeah. I can't. I tried lo- using pauses for a while, but the timing of the, the bits is never the same because yeah. if, if the audience laughs, they 
they it, it gets dragged out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the 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 playback device has changed, but it's still always in the box. I just don't talk about the box anymore on stage. Um, but starting and stopping it has been kind of a pain because sometimes it's sloppy and sometimes like the track skips ahead a little bit or I play the wrong one or I still have to walk downstage to address the audience and still have to walk back upstage to hit, to cue my track. Yeah. So I recently in the past few months started performing with the DJ for the first time. And that's Nelson. That's Nelson Luga, my ah, co-host on the Epic Piecast. Yeah. That's cool. Um, okay. Where did the name Shape of the Dark Lord come from? I guess it's kind of self-explanatory, but what was, when did you first be like, oh, that's a great name? Um, well, so my stage name is Shape of the Dark Lord or STD um, to kind of help people who have a hard time spelling Schaefer. There's a lot of spellings of it. Mine's not that common. Uh, the acronym came first. Okay, that's funny. Yeah, it's uh, and then the umlauts or whatever after that. Yeah, the umlauts came when I when I first started the solo act, and it was because I was trying to again send a little code to the audience that it was a metal influence thing because the umlauts very popular in all of the genres of metal throughout the years. Right. Yeah. Uh, I've kind of I don't really use them that much anymore. Yeah. Um, if people do, I'm I'm honored that somebody went to the trouble, but they're not that important anymore. Okay. Um, it's STD came first. Um, I again, it goes all the way back to '96 when I had this my little secret four track rap project that was incredibly problematic, and you'll never hear. <laughs> um, I had four rappers that I'd created, and I was doing. I would just do different voices for all of them. It was like this crappy Wu Tang thing, and we got to hear this. This <laughs> lost media oh, now. It, it's so bad. I'm not going to tell you the name of the projects. Then you can't find it. Can't even Google it. Um, but one of the rappers was MCSTD. Um, ah. Because lots of th their names were all gross and offensive. And so uh. MCSTD I thought was funny. I ended up using that one the most frequently on this project because it was the easiest to rhyme with based on compared to the other names. <laughs> when I started the group with Rocco, The mm -hmm. End of the World, I, st I was like, uh, my name's going to be uh, MCSTD because I was so delusional and I was so young at the time that I had it in my head that the end of the world was gonna take off and that someday I was gonna have all of this back material, backlogged material that I could release as like STD's early stuff. Kind of like Kid Rock did. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, which of course, you know, it didn't take, it was only a couple years well, later. Now, but now now I'm sure there's, there's you have tons of fans who would love to hear it. Now it's by choice you don't wanna put that. Yeah, now stuff. I'm mortified at the thought of any of that stuff coming out. Yeah. So Rocco and I put out some stuff and did a bunch of shows and I kept, I was MC STD and, he was MC Catastrophe, and that's how it was. And then we split up. I was had the same line of thought. I was like, I have all now. I have all of this material as STD with the end of the world. I got to keep using that. In um, the end of the world, STD didn't stand it for anything. There was I was constantly making jokes that it would stand for something different, like it was sadistic teenager destroyer okay. or scientific terror device, or my favorite one, which was something terribly deep <laughs> or something totally deep, or whatever. Yeah. Um, when I started doing it, and then when I decided to do a solo act, I was like, I have to keep using it, but I don't want to just call myself STD. So I had to come up with something to fit that acronym. So what was the moment you're like, oh, Schaefer the Dark Lord, perfect. I don't know, but yeah. I I feel like I didn't make a very good decision. Because <laughs> nobody nobody got it, because I, at the time in my head, I was like, Dark Lord, that's one word. But it's not. That's not a one word. That's not one word. So <laughs> people still spell it as like Dark Space Lord, and then some people abbreviate it like, SDL and because you're not supposed to use 
articles and acronyms and I, oh, right. I, I just made a mess of it. And Dark Lord was like both a reference to all of my love of black metal as well as my like lifelong love of Darth Vader. Thus ends part one of my interview with Schaefer, the Dark Lord. I thought it was really cool. We started the interview with a Star Wars reference and we ended with one. I mean, I did that on purpose with editing, you know, because it's like contextual. It's like framing the narrative. It's like storytelling. It's like all that flavor. But anyway, next week is part two. We get into some uh, of our of our touring history stories. And it's I really enjoy how this podcast came out. So please spread the word. Tell your friends. I wanted to end with a song. This is a song Schaefer and I did a few years ago, but like eight years ago, we were playing it on tour when we were opening for MC Chris. It's called Mad Men, and it's a basically it's a telling of the story of Mad Men from the perspective of uh, Don Draper and Roger. But when we first did the song, the show was still on the air, so Schaefer wrote the second verse and updated it and made it more um, modern and current. And my wife, Ash Wednesday, sings the chorus with us. This beat was produced by Joey Flash of Flash Fire, and uh, John Thatcher Longley played drums on it. And shout out to Samurai, who did some of the programming. And uh, what else, what else? Jason Moss did the final mix, and it's uh, you can hear it on Spotify. It's on my compilation, Donald Trump Has Very Bad Morals. Ooh, political. <laughs> no, whatever. Uh, check it out. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. Have a great week. And thanks for being supporters and being so friendly. Okay, bye. This is Mad Men. Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to tell you a very sad story about capitalism in America in the 1960s. The name's Don Draper, this is my story. The pain and the dream and the ads and the glory. The captain of my ship, Sterling Cooper Draper Price. The hours are insane, but the benefits are nice. It's NYC in 63. Willie Loman, hey, that's me. I live two lives, as you can see. Even lied to my family. Bring a whiskey till I pass out on my black house. My secretary wakes me up and I'm out. I slept with one and I'll sleep with another. Korean war vet with a prostitute mother. There's Joan and Peter, Peggy Roger. Everyone is a problem solver. Good men, bad men, you decide. We're lost in America, trying to get by. Not mad, are we really bad? Sterling, man about town, whose sex lives two ex-wives down. I never was faithful, I never was home. Maybe that's now why I'm all alone. Look at me now, I'm not doing so well. Things fall apart and the partners can tell. Despise by my daughter, denied to be a father. To Red's love child, only one on one of Foster. Lucky strikes leaving, our best client. Begged to stay, they were non-compliant. I was quiet, I couldn't hide it. The others called me out and I straight up denied it. Heart attack in my office, my lifestyle hits me in the face. The firm gets sold, kinda like my soul. So old, I'm gonna die in this place. We sell desire, we sell amenities, we drive consumption, we brand identities. Good men, bad men, you decide. We're lost in America, trying to get by. Not mad, are we really bad?
Everything changes, life gets harder. Piggy's promoted, Joan makes partner. Peter's in LA, lane price is buried. Mega sing Zoom, now we're married. In a dark penthouse, I drink back doubts. Roger drops acid, Sally acts out. I scare away Hershey, colleagues pee. A unanimous vote and I'm placed on leave. Static from black and white TV screams. Sick and Adam Whitman haunt my dreams. I played and have lost, now all that I've got. An empty pack of smoke to broke a bottle of scotch. Never seen a one I couldn't sell as a need. I'm falling from a skyscraper, picking up speed. Good men, bad men, you decide. We're lost in America, trying to get by. Not are we really bad Mad Men. Roger Sterling does a bunch of horrible things. Everyone is surprised, but not that surprised, as social issues play out in the background. 